0: Greetings, folks, and welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hasera, and for over 24 years, I was an Air Force pilot flying the KC-135 all over the world, passing gas into other airplanes. I have a lot of war planning experience also, and got to teach campaign planning at the Joint Combined Warfighter School to all of our services and our international partners. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we interview some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, air crew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose is to analyze the tactics, techniques, and procedures that these extraordinary aviators created during these extreme military, commercial, and even private flying operations. The reason we do it is to give you, our listeners, a greater understanding of how does the aviation world work and more importantly, sharpen critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. Today's episode is brought to you by Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit a book about flying tankers in four wars that's found on Amazon in all four format. On today's show, I'm going to give you the Air Force review of Top Gun Maverick. And in my review, I'm gonna discuss some things that I was involved with that kind of mirrors what happened in Top Gun. These kinds of things do actually happen and people are summoned into rooms with uh, concrete walls, (laughs) told to sign paperwork, and then given very tough assignments. And like I've said on previous episodes, you're gonna hear these stories first here on Lessons from the Cockpit. These are some of the things I don't even think I've told my wife and my kids about. Obviously because I had to sign non-disclosure agreements because of the nature of what we were trying to do and what we were planning. A lot of these plans just get put on a shelf. Every once in a while, one of them actually happens though. So grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the lessons from the cockpit show and a review of the movie top gun maverick from an air force perspective people have been asking me well have you gone to see the movie well of course i have (laughs) my wife and i went and saw it the night it opened for crying out loud people do you really think a movie that i've waited for two years i wasn't going to go see on the opening night of course we did now valerie doesn't like these kinds of movies not her kind of thing understand that and she humored me But I'll give you the bottom line up front about this movie. I loved it. It is probably the best flying movie I've ever seen, which is exactly what Tom Cruise's objective was. I'm going to make the best flying movie that has ever been made. And that, Mr. Cruise, on your 60th birthday, you accomplished in spades. As we can see by the box office sales, They've made over a billion dollars with this movie. And I think one of the reasons is because there's no wokeness in this thing. It is politically incorrect. It has everything you could possibly have in a movie except for one thing. And this is the only drawback to the movie and the only ding that I have for it was the music wasn't as good as the original. Kenny Loggins in Berlin, they created songs for the first one that were the top of the charts. Don't see any music at the top of the charts with this one. Now, I realize Lady Gaga did a great song, but that doesn't show up until the end of the movie, which I'm sorry to say is kind of sad. But the rest of the movie was great. They even loaded the right kind of weapons to go after this nuclear site on the F-18 Super Hornets. I couldn't believe it. So the technical advisors at Top Gun and the Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center did a great job of advising Tom Cruise and the producers and the directors on what they should include in the movie. Even some of the lines were perfect. Like when the targeting pod laser didn't work, dead eye, dead eye, dead eye. That's exactly what we say. So I was really pleased with the accuracy of the movie. The flying scenes in it were fantastic. Having been on an aircraft carrier and watching all of the things that go on in aircraft carriers, even that was superb in this movie. I give it two thumbs up. Five stars, whatever you want to say. Go see the movie. Realize it's not got the same kind of music that the first one did in it, but still, all of the actors played really great roles. And I'll talk about some of those things as we move along in this episode. Let's start with the opening of the movie. The drone versus man flight debate has been going on probably since the late 1990s when the first General Atomic MQ-1... Predator drone came out. All of the systems that go in an airplane, some of those are for the survival of the pilot. G-suits, oxygen, all those kinds of things. You take the man out of the airplane and you don't need all those systems. And now you have an airplane that can stay up for however long it needs to and can pull Gs, do all those kinds of things because you don't have to worry about the survival of the pilot. And Ed Harris at the beginning of the movie is kind of making that point. Maverick, you're a dinosaur. We can do this with unmanned vehicles. I have been fortunate to work on unmanned vehicles when I was working at Rockwell Collins, now Collins Aerospace. My good friend Bruce Ray came to me and he says, hey, I need your help with something. I said, sure. And we developed a flight deck or cockpit for an optionally manned airplane, that a particular manufacturer here in the US was trying to develop. I cannot talk about what that airplane was, but I can tell you that we actually put systems in it to where it would have two pilots in it, or it wouldn't have two pilots in it. And it could fly a long way, long endurance over the target area, because we could bomb things with it, uh, do electronic reconnaissance, photo reconnaissance, all these different things with it, and it was air refuelable, so it could stay up for however long it wanted. And I helped write this white paper with Bruce on this particular aircraft. Now, you hear the name Lockheed Skunk Works, and I think all of us have heard of the Skunk Works. They've produced the SR-71, the U-2, They have some fabulous things that they've worked on at the Skunk Works. Now, Boeing has their Phantom Works, which is kind of a similar thing. Very secretive. The top engineers work in this place. There are some amazing things that have come out of the Lockheed Skunk Works. And one of them, believe it or not, was an airplane called an RQ-3 Darkstar, Star. One of those airframes, there was four of them made, is now on display at the National Museum of the Air Force. And it looks like a big crab. It's got long straight wings with a big fat body in the middle. And they were trying to figure out how can we make a reconnaissance platform that can stay up for long periods of time with these long wings and so forth. Now, the program only went for a couple years. And then it was over budget, over schedule, a bunch of other things. And so they stopped it. Well, apparently there is a new Dark Star type of program that is running at the Skunk Works. Some of you may know Lockheed was involved with this portion of the film and they have this hypersonic aircraft that can go Mach 10. Now, there is all kinds of issues of an airplane moving that fast. And one of them you saw, of course, was heat. The airplane started heating up, and Maverick was getting all kinds of warnings about areas heating up on the aircraft's skin. The SR-71 Blackbird had a similar issue. Going at Mach 3 Plus at the altitudes it was going at, even the windscreen was warm, and the nipples on the shock cones of the engines that would slow the air down so that the engines could continue operating, those got really hot. And the nose of the SR-71 got really hot. I've heard stories that guys could actually heat their food up by putting it up on the glare shield next to the window. And even that crystal window would get very warm. One of the things in the movie they show you is Maverick making this turn in this airplane. Now, first of all, the SR-71 at its Mach high speed could start its turn in Mexico and it wouldn't finish it until it was like over Montana. And that was going Mach 3+. plus. So you can imagine an airplane going Mach 10 starts in New Mexico and probably finishes over Northern Canada somewhere. So that was one of the things that I noticed in the movie. You're not gonna set speed records in a turn either. But look at how they have used real world things that are going on and have put it in this movie, much to Tom Cruise's credit. That machine, if it is in fact real, and there's all kinds of YouTube videos on it, I've, I've linked to one in the show notes. This kind of airplane is within the realm of possibility. We're now making anti-ship missiles that are hypersonic. The Navy just recently tested one. But there's a lot of issues with something going this fast. Ramjets. They're now using an engine they call electromagnetic. The engine is an electromagnetic pulse engine. They think that instead of taking a year to get to Mars with an electromagnetic pulse engine, it'll take 37 days. Think about that how fast it's going if it's in outer space. So you don't have to worry about heat. One of the greatest thrills of my life was meeting the fastest man alive in a winged airplane. And it happened by chance. When I was going through ROTC at Brigham Young University, we would do base visits and we went to Edwards Air Force Base in 1982. And this, oh, I couldn't sleep I was waiting to go on this trip. We took a bus from Provo, Utah all the way down to Edwards Air Force Base. We were there for two days And we got to spend time in all these different places learning about what was going on at Edwards Air Force Base. My very good friend, John Cotter, met me there because I would bought him a pair of skis in Utah, and he came down to pick them up. He and I were in the officers club at Edwards Air Force Base, and they have a special room there. It's called the Poncho Barnes Memorial Room in the officers club. She was this rancher that all of these astronauts and test pilots would go to her bar and stay in her hotel, which was very close to the base. And so they made this memorial to her and to all of the astronauts and test pilots that had flown airplanes in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s there in the Poncho Barnes Memorial. John and I happened to be standing in there When a colonel walked in and he saw us there, he saw that we were ROTC cadets, and he just started talking to us. And my buddy John has got his eyes going down, and he wants me to look at the man's name tag. And the man's name tag said, night. And I just froze. I couldn't believe who I was talking to. I was talking to William J. Pete Knight, the man who had flown the X-15 to Mach 6.7, 4,520 miles an hour. They call him Speedy. Speedy Pete Knight the record holder in the F-16 was standing there in the Poncho Barnes Memorial explaining each picture and each artifact to two ROTC cadets. How random is that? It was one of these great experiences that I had in college to meet this man who had this incredible history of flying the X-15. Now, he got his name Speedy because obviously he's going Mach 6.7. 4500 miles an hour in a white x-15 that they had put external tanks on and it had another like scramjet engine on the bottom of it this flight did not go well while it was going as fast as it was going at mach 6.7 4520 miles an hour the heat ablation coating started melting off and it caused a lot of stability problems in the airplane as it was doing that. Not only did the heat coating start burning off, but the little scramjet engine that was on the bottom tail burned off at the same time. And because Pete Knight was such an incredible pilot, 6,000 hours and over 100 airplanes flown, he was able to get the x15 back on the ground and land it and the rear on the x15 it didn't have like regular wheels it had a double nose wheel but it had skids in the back that would fold down and that it would land on it and pete knight was able to bring this thing back and i think he landed it in nevada not in uh on the edwards range when he finished this this particular flight in October of 1967. He won, I think, the Harmon Trophy. He even got a Distinguished Flying Cross for bringing this vehicle back down to earth in one piece. But he is the fastest man alive even to this day. He passed away, I think, in 2004, but that record has still not been broken of winged man flight and speedy Pete Knight in the X-15. And here's two ROTC cadets just happened to be in the officer's club at Edwards Air Force Base and just happened to be standing at the right place at the right time in the officer's club and in walks Colonel William J. Pete Knight and explains to us all the different pictures, all the different pieces of metal and everything that were on the wall and the history behind them. For about an hour and a half. After Maverick sets this record in the Dark Star hypersonic airplane, he gets orders to go back to Fallon, Nevada. That is where Top Gun is located now. It's actually called the U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School. It has moved from Miramar in San Diego and is now at Fallon, Nevada. Fortunately for us, you can go back and listen to how you are selected and what you go through as a Top Gun student when you listen to Dave Koss, Mongo's episode. But what a lot of people don't know is the Air Force has its version of Top Gun. It is called the U.S. Air Force Weapons School. It originally started as the U.S. Air Force Gunnery School, then the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School, but it now has numerous divisions to include intelligence, command and control. They even have a space division and an intercontinental ballistic missile division as part of the Air Force's weapons school. And folks, it's an amazing thing to go through this school. First of all, you go through a board. Your leaders pick the people that are absolutely the best flyers, and leaders in their wings and squadrons. And they are nominated with a nomination letter in the top of the package. And then there's a board that each one of the divisions has, A-10, F-15, KC-135. All of the divisions have a board where they look at probably 20 to 30 packages and only pick maybe six to eight people. The biggest class I think we had when I was teaching at the KC-135 weapons school, was eight people in our third class in 2001. Now at this board, you are already expected to know how to fly the airplane. You're a fairly experienced instructor with about 1,500 hours in the particular airplane or as we say, MDS that you're associated with. Once selected by the board, we only have two classes a year, 22 Alpha, 22 Bravo. The Air Force's Weapons School is 19 weeks long. To give you an idea of what ours looks like, we have 428 academic hours, 18 five-hour flights, I think three three three-hour sims, and a graduate-level paper that you have to accomplish in 19 weeks. It's a doctorate degree in the employment of your weapon system accomplished in 19 weeks. It is a time management problem. But the amount of information that you get going through weapons school is incredible, but it's also the people that you associate with because you will come back somewhere sometime, you will be called into a room and you'll go, oh, I went to weapons school with him, him, her, her. It is amazing how you run into each other when you start doing follow on contingency plans. They will always come to Top Gun and weapons school graduates when national security is involved and they've got a really tough situation that they have to deal with. I have been called up four times to go into certain locations, sign paperwork saying I'm not gonna talk about this and work on really tough operational tactical problems that had strategic implications around the world. And many of these contingency plans kind of mirrored what we did in what's called advanced integration, where all of the divisions of the weapons school got together for the last two weeks of the course and worked on some very realistic scenarios dating all the way back to World War II. And we had to We had to come up with a plan based on these historical scenarios. And sometimes they were very unique and very forward thinking in our development of those plans. In the movie, when you see them all together in that bar, well, look who's here, look who's coming now, look who's coming now. You know, Hangman and Phoenix and Paycheck, all those people coming together. That is not an unusual thing for these kinds of things to happen. It's unusual that it's not Air Force and Navy But again, that event in the movie is very realistic. And like I said, Top Gun and Weapons School graduates are the best of the best. They are the leaders that will lead some of these missions, as you saw in the movie. And they're the ones that sit down and nug these battle problems out. And sometimes they are very complex. And here are three examples. In between Afghanistan and Iraq, during Operation Enduring Freedom, I was asked, Sluggo, come with me. And I knew right away what this was going to be. I didn't know the scenario, but I knew what was going to happen. Because every air campaign requires gas. The tanker guys are always going to get invited to a table like this. And I'm kind of surprised that there was no tanking involved for the Super Hornets in the movie. But that's a story for another time. The tankers will always be involved. Nobody kicks ass without tanker gas. Nobody. We are always in the room as tanker folks. While I was deployed to the Prince Sultan Kayak, south of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, my name was called. Went into a room and they said, okay, here's the problem. And that problem was a lot of the Al-Qaeda and Taliban folks were squirting out of Afghanistan and going to, of all places, Somalia and Mogadishu. Now, Somalia and Mogadishu, I think all of you know, is a failed state. But this is where they had Al-Qaeda and Taliban camps out in the far reaches of Somalia that they would go to and retrograde to, particularly if they were wounded or they needed some time off. And so leadership in CENTAF, Central Air Forces, put a bunch of us together in a room and said, hey, we need to come up with a contingency plan for all of these folks that are fleeing down to Somalia. There was a particular island that the boats would stop at to refuel that we euphemistically called Gilligan's Island on the way to Somalia. The great thing about this scenario was there was no air defenses. There were surface-to-air missiles. A matter of fact, the same surface-to-air missiles that they had in the movie, the SA-3 Goa and the low-blow radar, but they were all extremely poor maintenance, probably couldn't fire, radars probably didn't work, and there probably wasn't a lot of people in Somalia that knew how they worked anyway. After the intelligence brief, we all got together and said, okay, how are we going to do this? They were able to identify three or four, if I remember, of these Al-Qaeda Taliban camps in Somalia. They were very easy to pick out because they all had Datsun King Cab trucks in them with 23 millimeter guns bolted to the floor of uh, of the truck called technicals. Wherever you saw a lot of technicals together, you were pretty sure that was some kind of camp. And of course, We began watching these things 24-7, 365 because we're going to establish patterns of life. That's one of the first things we do when we're going to go do something in a particular area is we're going to find out who's there, what are they doing, how many are there, where are all their logistics support coming from, food, water, butter, bullets, the whole works, and just kind of watch these things for a while. These four camps were located in very remote areas of Somalia. And the first thing that we came up with was this was going to be an all bomber show. We had B-1s and B-52s located down at the British Indian Ocean territories or Diego Garcia, as we call it. So it made it very easy because we could load all kinds of weapons in the B-1. We could load big JDAMs on the B-52s and (laughs) I came up with one of the quotes of the week when we were planning this. As all of you know, airplanes up high produce contrails. A lot of people think that we're sliming people by chemtrails. It's just a natural thing for the engine hot air when it meets cold air up high to produce these contrails. And I said in this meeting, I want to put the air fueling areas right over the top of these camps because I want them to see the bombers filling up on their energy drink and know they're about to be bombed, okay? That is how warriors think. We want them to be psychologically impaired and we want them to see airplanes overhead that are air refueling, getting their energy drink, that are probably gonna drop bombs on them pretty soon. That's the way we think. Later on, we included the pirate camps and their ports, in this plan also, because all of you know, there's a lot of piracy in the Gulf of Aden and along that area of the Horn of Africa too. And we figured, why not kill two birds with one stone? Later we found out the pirates were actually moving the Al Qaeda and the Taliban guys into Somalia in their boats. So my job was to come up with the refueling plan, which I did. I named all of the air refueling areas after NASCAR drivers, okay? Labonte, Waldrop, Gordon, was right off the coast of Mogadishu because all of us wanted to go back to Mogadishu and flatten that place. And the air-fueling area that we created for the bombers was only about 20 miles offshore. So the tanker guys could even watch what was going on in Mogadishu if we started bombing that place. Now. To get to all of these air-fueling areas, you have to have kind of highways in the sky, roads in the sky. I named all of those after NASCAR circuits, Daytona, Talladega. We have to have some fun while we're doing this too. And it just made the planning easy. These are the kinds of contingencies that Top Gun graduates and weapons school graduates get involved with. Here's a more recent one. During President Trump's administration, Two B-2 bombers, call sign CLIP-11 and CLIP-12 with a spare CLIP-13, took off out of Whiteman Air Force Base in Knob Noster, Missouri, and headed northeast. Their first air refueling was on AR-209 over Nova Scotia, and they continued on to their targets in the Sirte Libya area. Two big, huge camps there that one B-2. One B-2 bomber went after, and then the second B-2 went after the other camp. They had predator feed in their cockpits, watching what was going on. They were carrying 85 500-pound joint direct attack munitions, or as we call them, baby JDAMs, to drop on targets in these camps. A young captain who had just graduated from weapons school in December was chosen to lead this mission because... He's the most highly trained guy in the squadron or the wing. And he planned this over 25-hour mission. And I think they took 955,000 pounds of gas to move these two B2s to their target area and back out. So when it comes time to do these missions, the guys and gals that are the weapons school graduates, the patch wearers, are the ones that they go to to do all the planning and to lead these missions. Now, that particular B-2 pilot said, hey, just like the scenario we had at weapons school, going into combat is a lot easier than than weapons school ever was. He made in a statement. And again, we had a scenario like this that they did during the advanced integration where they're working with special forces on the ground, intelligence collection Aircraft in the air and going in and taking out some of these targets. Matter of fact, I read in an article about the strike that they actually updated the coordinates for some of the bombs because of new targets that they were being passed by special forces on the ground that they were seeing on the Predator video, too. Graduates of weapons school are found very easily in the manpower system. We are given a W prefix in front of our specialty code. And when they need to do something like this, they can go look for these W prefix people in the personnel system and pick us out very quickly. Sometimes you get to go to good deals because of what they teach at your weapons school. We have a weapons officer, his call sign is Sunday, who actually got to go and be Part of an air defense exercise in Israel, of all places. And the reason he got to do that was because as part of the KC-135 Weapons School syllabus, we go to the Missile and Space Intelligence Center down in Texas at Fort Hood. We learn all about these integrated air defense systems, particularly manned portable SAMs. And then we have classes on all of the enemy service to air missiles, their radars, as part of core classes in the Air Force Weapons School syllabus. But we, in the KC-135 division, also tour the Navy destroyers and cruisers, which also have an air defense tasking. By virtue of Sunday, having been on ships and going through Fort Hood and seeing all of these enemy defense systems and being a student in these core classes, he had all of this knowledge on how to do air defense, both at sea and on the ground. And he got this special tasking to go over to Israel and be part of this big exercise. Now, all of these stories are just to show you, these are the kinds of things that Top Gun and Weapon School patch wearers get involved with. The men and women that come out of the weapons school are extremely skilled, highly intelligent, and are the best in their weapon systems. And we can go find them in the personnel system if something comes up that requires us to make some type of military contingency plan and go execute it. Because we'll also be the leaders flying the airplanes that are doing those strikes or performing those functions somewhere around the world. Moving on to the scenario in Top Gun, they're going after a nuclear site buried under a mountain that has SA-3, Goa, Russian-built surface-to-air missiles defending it. They have what's called a low-blow radar that's associated with the SA-3. And they're going to have to go low-level through the canyons, pop up into this crater, for lack of a better term, drop these bombs, these laser guided bombs through the vents and then uh, climb out on the other side by doing this hygiene maneuver that's going to take them up into the radar search area of the of the SA-3s. Now, this is not a far fetched scenario, folks. There are two countries that have nuclear facilities that the Americans at one time probably wanted to bomb. I am very familiar with one of them. As all of you know, President Trump also sent bombers to take out chemical weapons in Syria. Oh, real quickly, I misspoke. At the end of President Obama's administration is when they went to Libya to take out those targets, not President Trump. President Trump and his administration went after the chemical weapons plants and facilities that were scattered throughout Syria. So going after these chemical, biological, and nuclear facilities is not an uncommon thing in the military. And I'm sure that on some shelf somewhere, there's all kinds of contingency plans to destroy these things. I know of one particular one because that's when I got called into a room to say, okay, if we had to do this, how would we do it? And as I told you we're never going to go after one of these kinds of chemical biological nuclear weapons facilities without tankers being involved. So I had to sign another piece of paperwork that I wouldn't disclose any of the information dealing with this. The two countries that we know of that have nuclear facilities are of course North Korea and Iran. The facility in North Korea is set in an area, in a mountainous area, just like you saw in the movie. The Iranian facility is actually right on the coast in the Northern Arabian Gulf, and it stands out like a sore thumb. Now, believe it or not, folks, there is a website called Above Top Secret that has a downloadable overlay of Google Earth, and it shows every surface-to-air missile system in the world. And you can go to it by country on this website called Above Top Secret. I couldn't believe it when I found it. And as a matter of fact, I showed the Tanker Weapons School folks this overlay when I was up there visiting and everybody went quiet in the room because they can't say yay or nay on that, but their silence told me everything I needed to know. In Google Earth, which is open source, You can actually drill down and zoom in on these missile sites all over the world and you can see the radars you can see the missile systems you can see the command and control vans and there's little tags for each one of the surface-to-air missile locations and each one of those tags tells you exactly how many launchers are there what kind of radars are there because As you know, if you are in Europe, they have plane spotters that just go nuts over this kind of stuff when airplanes are coming in and out, particularly in England. They are watching the tail numbers, what time they land, what base they land at, what time they leave, all these different kinds of things. And I found out that there's another group of folks that digitally go around Google Earth and pick out surface-to-air missile sites. I've put the link to Above Top Secret in the show notes where you can download this thing. And if you want some really fascinating reading or looking at stuff, download this overlay onto Google Earth on your computer and go look at Moscow because there's a ring of S-400 SAMs around Moscow. There are SAM systems all over North Korea, SAM systems all over Iran, At one point in time, it had all of the Syrian missile systems, but those have long been destroyed. Same in Iraq. Again, above top secret, Google Earth overlay of every SAM site in the world. And it's an amazing thing to look at. That is one of the things that we do at a very top secret level. We look at all of the things that defend the particular targets. And I just thought it was interesting that there's an open source you can go to that shows you exactly where the SAM sites are and you can zoom in on them and see exactly what's there. Oh, another one you wanna go look at, Kaminamin Airbase is the Russian airbase right outside of Latikia, Syria. And you can see the SAM sites there. Uh, they haven't hangered a lot of the airplanes. I haven't looked at it in a while but you could see all the SU-35s and 25s and even the Russian airplane that's in the movie called a Felon, the advanced fifth generation fighter that they fight. They even had a couple of those on the ramp at one point. And the really cool thing about Google Earth is you can go back in history and you can look at the patterns of life as they're building things for several years, even over a decade to 15 years in some cases. So go look at Kaminamin Air Base. It is just, I think, east-southeast of Latikia, Syria. And you'll see it on Google Earth when you open this up because it looks like nothing else in this world. Two great big huge runways, a bunch of aprons to park airplanes. But it has, at the north end of the runways, a SAM site. And at the middle of the runways to the east, the S-400 SAM system. What's really crazy about this Is As all of you know, the Israelis have F-35s now, two squadrons of them. And from what I'm hearing, the the S-400 SAM systems are not picking up the F-35s. The Israelis, of course, do things to their airplanes once they get them. And maybe there's some other systems they have on board. But one of the F-35 squadrons in Israel went into Beirut, Lebanon, and were striking mobile service to air air or surface-to-surface missile sites and the Russians didn't see them, didn't engage them. Later on, they went after someplace and one of the F-16s got hit and actually crashed. One of the, the guy in the backseat, I think, was severely injured. But apparently the F-35 cannot be seen by these greatest and latest SAM systems made by the Russians. But I digress. Again, open source, Go to Above Top Secret and find this overlay, and if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. And you can be an air campaign planner like the rest of us by looking at the air defenses all over the world. Now, as I mentioned to you, they even picked the right bombs. The bomb that they had on the Super Hornets that they were flying are called GBU-24s. They have the BLU-109 Bunker Buster Warhead And what happens is you put this tail assembly that have folding out fins and the seeker assembly on the nose and they bolt right onto a regular bomb and it makes it into a smart bomb. The bombs that they used in the movie, I noticed even had the heat resistant ablative coating on them that you have to have on carriers. The air forces are this olive drab. The navies have this gray coating on them because of safety reasons on the aircraft carriers that are heat resistant, that they had on these Super Hornets on the deck. And you can see them. And this is one of the great aspects of this movie. The technical expertise and advice that they got was really superb. Now in the movie, you see them flying down these valleys. Maybe some of you have not heard of this, but there's actually a place in Southern California, near Death Valley, that photographers go to called Star Wars Canyon. It's named from the movie, the very first one where Luke is, you know, swamp rats in Star Wars where he's going down and hitting uh, these swamp rats in this this canyon that he flies through. So we've named it Star Wars Canyon. There's another one in England called the Mock Loop where they're flying in between these canyons and these mountains that Aviation photographers go to and absolutely love being there because the airplanes are just screaming by you and They're close now. We have low-level routes throughout the entire United States It looked like the movie was being shot at the low-level routes training routes that are up in northern California Maybe even Washington and again we do this low-altitude training for these kinds of missions to stay under the radar not be detected in airplanes like the Super Hornet that don't have low observable properties. The F-35, F-22 are considered low observable aircraft. We call them stealth aircraft, whatever you want to call them. But in the case of these Super Hornets going in to attack this target, they actually have some tools that they didn't use in the movie, which would have been more realistic. There is a version of the F-18 Super Hornet called the F 18G Growler. That airplane jams radars and also has AGM 88 high speed anti radiation missile or HARM that takes out the radars. All the HARM does is seek out the radars and destroy them with a warhead. I think it has 900 quarter inch steel tungsten cubes in it. One of those airplanes, or a couple of them, may have been going in with them to deal with the radars once they came out of that valley and were in uh, the footprint or field of view of these radars. Because that's the perfect time to be shooting these things with harm. The Navy does what we call seed deed a little differently than the Air Force does. They do it concurrently. They'll go in with the strike package And they'll take out all the air defense systems with these high-speed anti-radiation missiles and these jamming pods that they have on the EF-18G Growler. Folks, if you really want to understand how good we are at doing this, go back and read on Wikipedia and other places Operation Orchard or operation out of the box. And it will show you this scenario in Top Gun really isn't that far-fetched. In September of 2006, the Israeli Air Force launched a strike package of non-stealth airplanes, F-15E-I, like our F-15E Strike Eagles, F-16Is, SUFAs, two-seat F-16s with these big slipper tanks and everything on them, They took off, went north, went through Turkey, went low level, took out an early warning site and destroyed a nuclear power plant that was being built on the Euphrates River near a town called Der Azor. There was a lot of things written after this. The entire air defense system of Syria went down for about 20 minutes and Aviation Week and Space Technology kind of let the cat out of the bag on how we do this. A lot of us were very surprised when we started reading stuff in Aviation Week and they were letting out some really big secrets on how we deal with integrated air defense systems. One of the airplanes that took off with this strike package was actually a Grumman Gulfstream executive jet that was configured as an electronic intelligence aircraft. And when you go and you read the footnotes in Wikipedia's write-up on Operation Orchard or Operation Out of the Box, it explains how we do this. And believe it or not, uh, Der Spiegel, the German magazine, did a bunch of write-ups on all of this too. We use kinetic means, meaning the high-speed anti radiation missile, but we also use non-kinetic means, as in jamming, viruses, And some other things that we do network attack with basically renders all of these things fairly harmless to a non-stealth package coming in. Obviously, for the target set that we were going after in the Top Gun movie, we would have used low-observable airplanes. The Navy has F-35s in their carrier air wings now. They have the ability to launch laser-guided bombs, just like the Hornets do. There's another thing that the Super Hornet has that you can Google and it'll come right up. It's called the ALE 50 or 55 Toad Decoy. We use these to great effect during Allied force over Kosovo. The B-1s have them, the F-16s have them, and the Super Hornets have them. We call it Little Buddy. And what it is, is a toad decoy that is reeled out behind the airplane. It's hooked up to the radar homing and warning system in the airplane, but it sends out signals so that the radar guided missiles come to the decoy, not to the main aircraft. And on the F-16, they're carried on a pylon out on the wing. The B-1 bomber has them in little blisters in the back. The F-18 Super Hornet, has them between the wheel wells. And these little decoys would have pulled off all those missiles being shot at them. Now, you can only carry so many decoys, but that's one of the things that they didn't depict in the movie. In his book, Viper Pilot, Dan Hampton talks about putting the little buddy behind him. We call it walking the dog, little buddy walking the dog, because it reels out behind you. And he even makes some comments about how his tow decoy had been destroyed by missiles that were being fired at him, but hit the decoy instead. And that decoy would work perfectly in this environment of these older SA-3 missiles and these low blow radars. So that was one of the things they didn't put in the movie. I've done a lot of air campaign planning, and obviously non-stealth airplanes like the Super Hornet probably not the first choice of airplanes to go in there, particularly now that they have F-35s in the carrier air wings. And I read an article that says the F-35 does have tow decoys as well. That's probably the airplane they would have used. They would have required air refueling. The EF-18G Growlers probably would have accompanied them in to help take down the integrated air defenses and all those missiles you saw up on The canyon walls, that's a more likely strike package for going after something buried deep like that in that kind of environment. But I just wanted you to understand, there's a lot of tools that we have available to be able to go in and hit a target like this with the kind of missiles that they were using in the movie. Oh, one other thing. We always have rescue forces somewhere standing by to go and pick people up. And I will tell you that there were a number of contingency plans that we put on a shelf because of the survivability of the pilots flying it. In the show that we did with Spliff Russell, I said, we will leave no one behind. You will not have to go and start up an F-14 and get out of Dodge in an old airplane to make it back to your base. And one of the first things we look at is the rescue options of picking up pilots that are shot down behind enemy lines and being able to go and pick him or her up from any particular location. And that was one of the checklist items that was a, no, uh, that was a go, no-go item. We can't get at the pilots if we go after this target because of the dense integrated air defense system. And so that was put on the shelf because seriously, I don't know of any situation, and again, I don't know of any situation where we would send people in and say, this is a one-way mission. Now, I know that those thoughts went through the Neptune spear seal guys that were going to Abbottabad, but we probably would have done everything we could to go get those guys out. Fortunately, didn't have to deal with that. The SEAL Team six gentlemen performed superbly, got the mission done, and got out. Very early on in the planning, one of the things we look at, can we rescue the air crews that are going in and doing this? And if it's a no, there's a very good likelihood we're going to say no to that option. One of the options that we could also use, you saw in the movie, and that's cruise missiles. And we have a lot of different cruise missiles that we can use that are launched from submarines, that are launched from cruisers and destroyers. We have air launch cruise missiles from the B-52. It's called Joint Air to Surface Standoff Missile, or JASM. This is the missile that the B-1s were carrying to strike at some of the integrated air defense systems and the chemical weapons facilities during the Trump administration when they bombed Syria after they had used chemical weapons in some of the battles there. JASM also has a Navy version that goes after ships, and it's called L-RASM, and it's a long range sh- ship standoff weapon. And these things have low observable properties, but they're GPS guided. So if you have GPS jamming systems in and around the targets, you're not gonna be able to use these things. The Chinese have a very good GPS jamming system in their inventory. We've already heard about the air-to-air missiles. Rico talked about them, Mongo a little bit. The newer Super Hornets are coming off the assembly line with what they call an AESA radar, active electronically scanned array that is both passive and active sensor and they shoot the AIM 120 AMRAM missiles using this radar. And those AMRAMs have a really good range and have their own little radars inside of them. So that once you fire them, they go to a certain place, open up their eyeballs, and would have taken out those SU 57 felon fighters that were chasing these guys down. And you see later on, Hangman comes in and takes out the felons that are attacking. Rooster and Maverick as they're trying to get out. That Felon fighter is one of the top of the line, kind of fifth generation fighter that the Russians are putting out. It's got this really cool digital kind of paint scheme on it too. And you can look up SU-57 Felon on Google and see what this airplane looks like and see what its capabilities are. But I don't think that other countries are flying those yet. I think only the Russians have that technology to fly that airplane right now, and there's very few of them. They have sent them to Syria, and our pilots have dealt with them in flying over Syria, but I don't think any other countries have that particular airplane in their inventory. Oh, back to the cruise missiles. We call them Greyhounds. The Navy can shoot these, like I mentioned, from subs and the destroyers and cruisers. And these are amazing weapons. They have a number of different types of warheads that they can put inside the cruise missiles that are perfect for taking out airfields like you saw in the movie and causing all kinds of havoc. If I remember right, on the opening night of Shock and Awe, I think there was 109 cruise missiles coming into Baghdad. And just to mess with their heads the Iraqis' heads and their air defense system, we had some of them orbiting south of Baghdad and they would leave their orbits on timing with some of the stealth airplanes and non-stealth airplanes coming in to attack targets because you want your enemy to kind of be looking the other direction. And it was kind of our poke in the eye to Saddam saying, our cruise missiles are here and you can't do anything about it and they would leave their orbits and go in and strike targets throughout Baghdad. So launching a big covey of those cruise missiles is not uncommon. And the airfield is a perfect target set for cruise missiles that are dropping bomblets all over. Now, surface-to-air missile sites and their radars are also perfect targets for cruise missiles with area denial weapons or mines or warheads, like 1,000-pound warheads. We would use cruise missiles for those kinds of things also. There was a lot of missiles in this movie, though. I noticed that it seemed like at every turn, there was like three or four of these SA-3 Goa missiles above the guys going through the valleys. Now, one of the other things about SA-3 missiles is... When they're set up, they're set up what we call a bear paw. You have two launchers that are kind of side by side with one out in front and the radar behind it. And it looks like this funky kind of bear paw. So it's very distinguishable when you're looking at imagery from overhead, whether it be national assets or some airplane taking reconnaissance photos of it, whatever it happens to be. The SA-3 system looks like nothing else in this world, it's got a very distinct signature. And sending cruise missiles in after those kinds of air defense targets is common and is a perfect target set for a cruise missile attack. If I had been planning that mission, I would have used a lot more cruise missiles. In a carrier battle group, there may be three to four Aegis cruisers, Aegis destroyers that are carrying these things. And of course, if you're going out on this particular mission, you're going to load the vertical launch systems in the submarines, the cruisers, or the destroyers with however many of these cruise missiles that you want. And go and look at the history of cruise missiles, particularly the ones that the Navy uses. The requirements were they had to be able to load these into the torpedo tubes of submarines. And that is some very tight tolerances. That was like one of the big requirements was you had to be able to shoot these out of torpedo tubes in submarines, and they did it. They figured it out. And those cruise missiles can go a long way with area denial or cluster bombs and 1,000-pound warhead, and there's a couple of other warheads that they use, obviously, that uh, we just don't talk about when it comes to cruise missiles. Now, there's one character in the movie that really makes himself known, and that's, of course, hangman and hangman doesn't get picked to go on the mission some of you may be wondering well i mean how come uh, he picked uh, you know her and him and rooster and, and 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 left hangman hanging but you know what folks a guy like hangman i'm going to put him on five minute alert on the aircraft carrier so that if there is a plan b i have a guy that can lead plan b and hangman would have been the perfect guy for that. On aircraft carriers, they have 15 minute, five minute alert like you see in the movie. They will have airplanes parked literally right behind the catapults. The air crews will be in the cockpit waiting to take off. They're of course listening to a lot of stuff going on. One of the airplanes that they had flying is called the E2D Hawkeye, which is their command and control airplane. We have the E3 AWACS. And we use what's called the RC-135 rivet joint for electronic intelligence. I was happy that the E-2 was seen in the movie because that's exactly how we would do things. The Navy would send the E-2 Hawkeye up. They'd be kind of watching what's going on. They're watching for enemy aircraft. They're listening to things going on, watching things with their radar. The E-2, as the command and control element, would have probably radioed back, hey, maybe we need to launch the Alert 5. And you'll notice that Hangman even had the GBU-24s on the pylons. He also had the double launch rail for the AIM-120 Advanced Medium Range Air-to-Air Missile, or AMRAAM as we call them. The nickname we give them is Slammer. If you get in the no escape zone of an AIM-120 AMRAAM or Slammer, you are going to die. That missile is going to hit you and there is nothing you can do about it. And I noticed that when Hangman went belly up, he had, I think, the two bombs, but he also had the dual launcher. I think it's called a Lao 115 Launch adapter unit 115 that has two of these launch rails that hold the AIM-120 missiles on it. Now, you can hold AIM-120s or you can hold the aim 9 x which is the heat-seeking Sidewinder missile, also a fantastic missile that they had on the wingtips of their Super Hornets. But Hangman was even loaded the way he should have been for an Alert 5 airplane. If they needed to go in and drop bombs, he's carrying the Bunker Busters. Needed to go in and take out the Su-57 felons, he's got the AIM-120s on the wings. Launching those airplanes, the Alert 5 airplanes are called Alert 5 Because they can get in the air and launch off in less than five minutes. Taxi up to the cat. The nose-toe bar goes down. Put them in the the shuttle. And off they go in just a matter of minutes. I was able to talk to a very dear friend of mine, very good friend of mine I used to teach with. And he told me he was the Alert 5 during one of the Libyan engagements where the two... VF-32 swordsman F-14s shot down the two MiG-23s. And a matter of fact, he got launched, cover that combat air patrol or cap for the two F-14s as they came back. So this is nothing new, having airplanes ready to go at a moment's notice on an aircraft carrier deck. And like I said, five minutes is all they need to launch and go out and do what they need to do. There is obviously air-to-air combat air patrol, There's also surface combat air patrol, or as they call it, SUCAP, where you have airplanes armed to take out other ships as well as radars and maybe possibly air-to-air threats. The Super Hornet is the perfect plane to do all that. It can carry all kinds of different weapons, air-to-air, air-to-ground. If we're going after a bunch of ships on the ground, say that you're under attack, by a bunch of Iranian fishing boats that are trying to ram you and explode, then the Super Hornets carrying laser guided Mavericks or some type of laser guided bomb that will just blow those ships to smithereens. SUCAP and MIGCAP, as we call it. MIGCAP, obviously, after the Russian Mikoyan and Gurvich who manufactures MIGs in Russia. That's just a common name. I think the last thing I wanna do here is talk about call signs. There's this whole discussion in the movie about, well, you know, how do Hangman get his call sign? Well, he leaves you hanging, Hangman. You know, he leaves you high and dry. Uh, there's Phoenix, there's Paycheck, Rooster, all of these different names. And I wanna spend a few minutes here just talking about how do you get call signs? My call sign is Sluggo. I was a big kid when I was born. I was a big kid through the Air Force. I was always on the edge of the fat boy program, but I weighed 10 pounds, 13 ounces, and was 23 and a half inches tall when I was born. The little Nancy cartoon from the 50s, her little roly-poly friend Sluggo, that's where it comes. And I always tell everybody, that's Sluggo with two Gs. Now, of course, you can get call signs for a lot of different things, and some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are pretty serious, some of them go with their name, some of them are for very stupid things that you've done. Here are a few of them that I heard during my career. I was on the USS Independence working with Carrier Air Wing 5 off the coast of Okinawa. Was bunking with two Hornet pilots from uh, I think VFA 195. And <laughs> One of the pilots came up to me and says, hey, I'm just going to warn you, this is going to happen in the middle of the night, and it happens every night, you'll be awake for a few minutes, but you go right back to sleep. And I thought, what could possibly happen? This particular Hornet pilot's name was Swag, sleeps with a gorilla. This particular pilot had a stuffed gorilla that he slept with every night. In the middle of the night, he'd start wrestling that gorilla and you could hear him raw, 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 in bed rolling around. and then he'd tossed that thing across the room and it hit something. Well, <laughs> the second night, Swag went into his routine wrestling with this gorilla and he threw it and it hit. One of the guy's laundry, the other pilot's laundry, that was in this paper bag made this loud pop sound and the gorilla rolled up right next to my bunk. I was on the bottom of three bunks and there it was facing up at me, Swag's gorilla. Now, another group that I uh, was on board with and was bunking with, they called one of the Tomcat pilots Pigpen. And I said, well, how did he get that call sign? He's, they said, Sluggo? Just go around the corner there and take a look at his bunk. It was a freaking mess. There were clothes and underwear and all kinds of things everywhere. Hence the name Pigpen. Now, sometimes you do things that can be really grating on people. And one of these guys was named Mammal. Most Annoying Man Alive. (laughs) And that tells you all you need to know about his personality. Another pilot, call sign Miami. Missing in action, maybe intoxicated. (laughs) They'd go from uh, all these different places and he'd show up missing. Usually when they were bar hopping. And so he got the name Miami. Missing in action, maybe intoxicated. Another pilot, Got the name Nemo as his call sign. Not expecting much output. Sometimes people get their call sign after famous people. This was not one of those times. Say Jack, situational awareness just above Kelvin. <laughs> and sometimes they're based on looks, sometimes not real good looks. So one particular gentleman got the name Puma possibly ugliest man alive, (laughs) not after the cat. (laughs) And if you think you're better than everybody else, you just might get the call sign Missy. My important schedule supersedes yours. (laughs) But I think one of the best ones is for Ewan McGregor's brother. Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan, has a brother who flies fighters in the Royal Air Force. So naturally, he got a call sign based on his famous brother. Instead of Obi-Wan, they call him (laughs) Obi-2. And that, folks, is how people get call signs in the military. Sometimes it's for things that are stupid. Sometimes it's for things that you do that are stupid. And sometimes they're just based on personality or your last name or the way you look But there is one thing about call signs that will make it stick longer than anything, and that is if you complain about your call sign and are moaning and groaning about it, that's the name you're gonna get stuck with. That's my review of Top Gun. Great movie, great entertaining movie. Being able to watch all of these things come together in a movie like that was really a lot of fun. I've seen it twice now. All of my kids wanted to go see it with me. That i could explain what was going on but it's historically accurate the things that are going on in the movie are accurate the flying scenes like i say are incredible and my only downside of the movie was the music wasn't as good as it was in the first one kenny Loggins, berlin still a great movie and the accuracy of this thing was really cool and the flying scenes now that they've got these little small cameras that they can put all over everywhere gopro has really changed the way we film in the airplane thanks once again to my sponsor for this episode the book tanker pilot lessons from the cockpit that's found in all four formats on amazon hardback softback kindle and Audible. I hope you'll share this episode and previous episodes with your friends and loved ones. All of my episodes can be found at my website, marcusara.com under the podcast pull-down box. I mentioned to you, I'm going to do a special six-part series on the Battle of Roberts Ridge and that's going to start probably in two weeks. So folks, have a great week. I hope that you'll tune in once again and listen to the Lessons from the Cockpit show.